Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, the editor of Crux. This is Last Week in the Church, our brand new hip and happening Monday edition. You can just smell the freshness of the news, can't you? Before we get started, I would like to note uh, that today, Monday, May 10th, in the year of our Lord, 2021, is the birthday of my wife, Elise Ann Allen, the backbone and moral center of the entire Crux Enterprise. So to Elise, tanti auguri, and here's to the year to come, even better than the one that just closed. All right, here's what is on today's menu. We have got Germany presses ahead on blessing same-sex unions. The Vatican backs Biden on COVID vaccines. Communion wars heat up in the States. The Cardinal's dame dishes some dirt. And finally, an Italian vignette and its lessons for the Vatican. That's what's waiting for you on the other side, so please stick around. All right, so we begin today with Germany. Many years ago, uh, the famed theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar uh, described what he called an anti-Roman affect uh, in the German Catholic Church, basically an anti-Roman instinct, which he linked with the tradition of the Protestant Reformation and Basically, he was suggesting there is kind of a genetic German tendency to be a little skeptical of Rome and Roman rule. Uh, and this has been used subsequently to explain all kinds of things uh, about the German Catholic Church. Uh, most recently, uh, it has surfaced again uh, with respect to the attitude uh, of the German Catholic Church vis-a-vis a recent edict from the Vatican's Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which essentially said that Catholic pastors may not bless same-sex unions uh, because uh, it muddies uh, and, and sort of cuts against uh, traditional Catholic teaching about marriage, which of course is that marriage is between a man and a woman. It is a union for life and it must be open to new life. And obviously, same-sex unions are not in compliance uh, with that. Now, that was seen as, in some ways, a shot at the Catholic Church in Germany, where the blessing of same-sex unions has been kind of standard practice for a long time uh, in some circles. Uh, but this weekend, this past weekend, uh, was the first time that four Catholic parishes in Germany staged public blessings of same-sex unions in open defiance uh, of the recent Vatican edict. Uh, and basically speaking, uh, the, the pastor who was kind of the, the ringleader, I guess, uh, of this initiative, it's, they were sponsored by an organization in Germany known as Maria 2.0, uh, which is kind of a progressive church reform organization. This pastor said basically that if same-sex couples come to us uh, and they ask for their relationships to be blessed, uh, we have no right to deny them that blessing and no power on earth up to and including uh, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith can tell us not to do it. Uh, now, uh, you know, the, the obvious question this raises is what happens next? So when the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith put out this ruling, uh, it was released with the personal approval uh, of Pope Francis so it was billed uh, as a measure the Pope had uh, personally signed off on, 
Uh, but not long after that, the Pope made some remarks in which he referred to the dangers of legalism and kind of fussy rigidity uh, and the importance of pastoral accompaniment uh, of people in diverse circumstances. And those remarks, coming right on the heels of that edict, were interpreted as Pope Francis trying to put some distance between himself uh, and this document. I mean, you know, what many people thought is that what the Pope is saying is that he had kind of grudgingly approved this document, but didn't necessarily want any kind of witch hunt to follow uh, in terms of how it was going to be implemented and enforced. Uh, meanwhile, several individual German bishops uh, have said openly uh, that they disagreed uh, with the substance uh, of this edict. Uh, basically saying uh, that a blessing doesn't necessarily imply approval of a particular moral choice. Uh, what it really means in their eyes uh, is that despite the objective morality of the situation, the church nevertheless wants to recognize the human dignity and the decency of the people involved uh, in the situation and that it is better for the church to be present in their lives than not. In other words, if you slam the door shut, then you have no further opportunity to dialogue, you have no further opportunity to help these people move further down the path of holiness. So that's the argument. Uh, frankly, it is unlikely that, uh, that individual German bishops or the German bishops' conference will take any kind of action here. Uh, in terms of whether the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith will attempt uh, any kind of follow-up, uh, that remains to be seen. I suppose the most likely scenario uh, is that the choice would be to let sleeping dogs lie. Uh, the, the congregation has made its position clear. Uh, the, the, the elements of the German church, anyway, have made their position clear. Uh, and we are probably, at least in the short term, going to be living with this internal contradiction for some time. Uh, all right, second on the lineup, the Vatican backs Biden on COVID vaccines. So uh, recently, U.S. President Joe Biden made the controversial decision to waive intellectual property rights to COVID-19 vaccines in order to speed up their distribution in poorer nations. This came in part in, a resp in response to a request made by the governments of both India and South Africa last fall, uh, which sort of sat around for a while while it was being studied by wealthy industrial nations who have produced and therefore own the rights to these COVID vaccines. Uh, India, South Africa, other poorer nations have been clamoring for the ability to make ge generic kind of knockoff versions of these vaccines. That they will be that they would be able to uh, distribute to their populations. Quite clearly, India, India in particular, given the recent developments in terms of the explosion of the pandemic in that country, uh, has an incentive to try to want to do this as quickly as possible. President Biden uh, finally decided to accede to that request. Uh, it has played to mixed reviews in Europe. Uh, the president of the European Commission over the weekend said this is not a magic bullet, uh, and frankly, it's dubious. Uh, president Emmanuel Macron of France has said that, look, if the United States really wanted to do something about helping poorer countries, 
it would repeal its, uh, its veto, its block, uh, on exporting those vaccines. And it would also give away the technology needed to produce them because having the rights, if you don't have the tools, doesn't really mean very much. Uh, on the other hand, there is one corner of Europe uh, where this move by President Biden has drawn enthusiastic, I would say almost rapturous praise, and that's the Vatican. In a front page piece in L'Osservatore Romano, that's the official Vatican newspaper, uh, the, uh, the Vatican uh, outlet said that President Biden's decision marks a before and an after in the quest for global justice uh, when it comes to distribution of the COVID vaccine. Uh, they said that, the, that Biden was courageous in responding positively to this request by India and South Africa. Uh, it referred to the decision as visionary. Meanwhile, just about 36 hours uh, after Biden announced this decision, Pope Francis released a video message to a concert for COVID relief uh, in which he criticized nationalisms uh, when it comes to approaching the COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, and he also said uh, that he, he praised uh, decisions to waive intellectual property rights in order to allow poorer nations to, be, to have access uh, to these life-saving treatments. He did not mention Joe Biden, but it was widely taken uh, in press coverage as a de facto papal endorsement of Biden's stance. So what we have is a situation in which there appears to be a growing division between the White House uh, and at least some of the centers of power in Europe uh, over the question of intellectual property rights in COVID vaccines. There is, of course, the argument that if you live, if you lift those intellectual property rights, then you destroy the incentive system and pharmaceutical companies no longer have any market incentive, market incentive to, to invest heavily in the development uh, of these vaccines, which of course they did uh, amid the COVID pandemic. And you may in fact retard the production of these life-saving treatments. The question, excuse me, since the Vatican has made its position clear, the question is whether going forward, Pope Francis and his team may attempt to engage in some behind the scenes diplomacy, trying to bridge this apparent gap uh, between the United States and Europe. We will track that as it happens. Third, let's move across the water to the United States, where uh, what, what used to be derisively called the wafer wars, that is debates over who should and shouldn't be able to get communion, which we thought had kind of gone away uh, in 2000 and 2004, are now back with us. Uh, and the focal point is President Joe Biden, only the second Roman Catholic president in the history of the United States, uh, and his <clears throat> pro-choice policies uh, as president. Recently, excuse me, recently, Archbishop Salvatore Cordiglione of San Francisco issued a pastoral letter uh, in which he said uh, that pro-choice Catholic politicians, that is, Catholic office holders, who support pro-choice policies, who do not uphold 
the church's teaching on the sanctity of life, those office holders should not present themselves for communion. Now, this was taken in many circles as a reference to President Biden, although, of course, since Cordelione is the Archbishop of San Francisco, and that's where House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, also a pro-choice Catholic Democrat, resides, it has obvious implications for her as well. Uh, Cordelione's pastoral letter caused a number of other bishops in the United States to either come out in support of the position he has taken or criticizing it. Most recently, Canadian Cardinal Michael Cherney, in an interview with our colleague Claire Jean Gravet of the Religion News Service, <laughs> indicated that the question of who should get communion is up to each individual bishop to decide, the implication being, therefore, it is not something the Vatican should or could get involved with, not something that bishops' conferences as a collective should or could get involved with. Now, what are the short-term implications of all of this? Probably doesn't mean a great deal for President Biden. There is a new bishop in his hometown of Wilmington, Delaware. The bishop there has not taken any public position. He has said he wants to have a conversation with the president uh, about it. We'll see what happens there. But in any event, uh, in the Archdiocese of Washington, which is led by Cardinal Wilton Gregory, which is, of course, where Biden spends most of his time, uh, Cardinal Gregory has said that the Eucharist should not be weaponized. He has no intention of issuing any communion bans. He is probably fine. Uh, you know, for Speaker Pelosi, this probably means that when she goes home to San Francisco and wants to go to Mass there, she simply needs to make sure she chooses a place to go uh, where this is not going to be an issue. She has navigated that for much of her public career. No particular reason to think she won't be able to do it going forward. But it does mean this tension within the U.S. church of how absolute a priority abortion ought to be in terms of assessing the public performance, really of politicians generally, but particularly of Catholic politicians, that tension has not gone away. It does not seem there is going to be any uniform national standard. It doesn't seem that there is going to be a neat fix. It seems instead that this is going to be a bishop by bishop diocese by diocese, in some cases even parish by parish, tension that is going to be with the American church for some time to come. All right, fourth this week, the Cardinal's Dame dishes some dirt. All right, the Cardinal's Dame is a term that has been invented by the Italian press to refer to a laywoman and professional security consultant named Cecilia Marogna, who is very close to Italian Cardinal Angelo Becciu. Uh, Becciu, by the way, from a journalistic point of view, is just the gift that keeps on giving. Because this guy, whether he's even trying to or not, continues to generate news that is kind of tantalizing and, you know, and smacks of like intrigue and scandal just all of the time. Uh, and this is the latest chapter uh, in all of that. Uh, Bechu was for many years under Pope Francis the sostituto in the Secretariat of State, the substitute. 
basically that means he was the big dog. He was the chief of staff, the guy who made the trains run on time, the guy who knew where all the bodies were buried. Uh, and during that time, uh, he had many people with whom he consulted uh, and who he relied on to aid him in his work, one of whom uh, was this Italian laywoman and fellow native Sardinian, because Beichu is from Sardinia, so is Cecilia Marana. Uh, and that was the relationship. Then in 2018, uh, Pope Francis transfers Beichu from that role as the substitute to becoming the new prefect of the Vatican's Congregation for Saints, makes him a cardinal. Then last September, Pope Francis summons Beichu, fires him uh, as the prefect of the Congregation for Saints, and also strips him of his privileges as a cardinal. So, for instance, he no longer has the right to participate in the next conclave to elect a pope. All of that because of alleged financial misconduct by Beichu. Now, since that happened, Beichu has been the object of multiple investigations and accusations. A lot of people want to link him to a London financial deal that has generated controversy in the Vatican. Uh, and in the course of that, Cecilia Morona emerged as a person of interest. Uh, the Vatic Vatican prosecutors actually issued an arrest warrant uh, for her, seeking to have her extradited from Italy in order to stand charges in a Vatican court of financial misappropriation and other crimes. Uh, Italian courts so far have refused all that, saying they don't see the evidence. Uh, so the most recent thing uh, is that Moronia has given an interview to an Italian media outlet in which she has said that when she was a collaborator of Beichu uh, as the chief of staff in the Vatican, he asked slashed ordered her to produce dossiers uh, on various cardinals and other senior Vatican officials. These dossiers clearly uh, containing dirt, basically negative information. Uh, about these movers and shakers in the Vatican. Uh, the suggestion there being that Beichu wanted, he wanted to be like the J. Edgar Hoover of the Vatican, right? He wanted to be the guy that had the dirty files on everybody so that he would become untouchable. Clearly that didn't quite work out. Uh, now this claim by Maronia uh, has run into some skepticism. Uh, there are some who wonder, look, Beichu was a Vatican insider from the very beginning. He had worked at the Secretary of State. He had been a nuncio. He was a career Vatican guy. Did he really need a lay female professional from the outside to collect dirt on fellow Vatican insiders? I mean, surely he would have had access to that information in other ways. Uh, so far, Beichu's camp has not commented uh, on this most recent claim, although he has been very aggressive in the past. When there have been negative news reports, typically his legal team puts out a statement immediately and then they file lawsuits. Uh, so uh, there are at least two such lawsuits pending against Italian news outlets. We'll see if that happens again. Uh, but in any event, what this is an indication of, first, the Beichu story is not going away. Secondly, it is on the brink of becoming a classic case of what the Italians call un giallo. Uh, literally, that means something yellow. It's their term for a kind of mystery conspiracy story. Uh, because this thing is becoming so layered. Uh, and there are so many different competing claims and counterclaims that it's almost impossible to sort of peel back the onion and find out at this point what actually happened. So this may well be one of those cases where 
people just decide to think what they're going to think. Uh, and the objective truth proves frustratingly elusive. Uh, we will see. But in the meantime, uh, you have to say this for Angelo Bechu and for Cecilia Marona and for everyone else uh, involved, they continue to supply incredibly intriguing theater. All right, finally, a brief Italian vignette this week uh, and its lessons for the Vatican. Uh, folks, here's the thing. There are 1.3 billion Roman Catholics in the world. There are only about 60 million Catholics in Italy, which means that the vast majority of Catholics on the planet lack a vital piece of perspective when it comes to understanding the ways and means of the Vatican. Because the truth is, despite all of its pretense to be an international institution to globality and universality, the Vatican at its core remains an ineradicably Italian reality. <coughs> it is stubbornly monolingual and it is stubbornly monocultural. So a story this week that kind of makes the point. On June 6th, uh, a new blessed will be beatified in the Catholic Church. She is Sister Maria Laura Mainetti. She lived and died in an Italian city called Chiavetta, which is up in the north in Italy, in Lombardy. In the year 2000, tragic story, she was beaten and stabbed to death by three Italian teenage girls who wanted to stage their own satanic ritual. It was a clear case of Sister Mainetti being killed in odium fide, in hatred of the faith. She had been the catechist of these girls. They hated her because of what they saw as the religious propaganda she was trying to impart. Uh, and so she was very quickly declared a martyr, uh, and she is now set to be beatified. The, the story shocked the conscience of Italy uh, in the year 2000 when it happened. Uh, and she remains a very beloved figure, particularly in Chiavetta, her hometown. The mayor of the city uh, decided, uh, in conjunction with the beatification, that he wanted to rename a small street for Sister Maria Laura. Uh, and so he went before the city council. In a rare act of political unity in Italy, all the various parties decided this was a great idea. Uh, they voted it through. So the street is set to be renamed. It's just that the people who actually live on that street have circulated a handwritten cursive petition asking the mayor to rethink his decision, not because they are not devotees of Sister Maria Laura Mainetti. They are. And they express in this letter in incredibly plaintive and heartfelt terms how much her memory means to them and how much they want her legacy to live on. It's just that they also live in Italy. And if the name of this street is changed, that means that they have to redo all of their utility accounts. Uh, it means that their citizenship cards have to be changed. It means that their registration with the Italian health system has to be changed. It means the rental or ownership contracts for their properties have to be changed. That means their tax registration has to be changed. And here's what these people know about all of that. 
Doing any one of those things is a bureaucratic nightmare in this country. Trying to do all of them at once, there ought to be a special circle of hell reserved for what that experience would be like. So their appeal to the mayor is please name a park, name a public piazza for the sisters, some place that doesn't require individual citizens to have to have this kind of exposure to the bureaucracy. Now, as an American or a Canadian or wherever you are, you may be thinking, come on, what's the big deal? To change your utility accounts, you just go online. It's 10 minutes online. You can probably do all the rest of this online. It's a half hour out of your life. Who cares? This is Italy, ladies and gentlemen where the public bureaucracy is, it's not that it is slow. Uh, slow, I mean, to call the Italian bureaucracy slow would be an insult to things that are actually slow. The Italian bureaucracy is essentially frozen in place. It is immobile. Okay, just to get my simple residency permit in Italy, uh, I'm picking it up this week. It has been a solid year. I have been waiting and trying to get that document. And my experience actually has been relatively user-friendly compared to many. Now, what are the implications of all of this for the Vatican? You know, Americans, Canadians, Germans, Brits, Irish, uh, Catholics from many parts of the world, they will often complain about what they perceive to be the slowness of the Vatican bureaucracy, how slowly the wheels appear to grind. I mean, you will submit a question to the Vatican and sometimes you won't get an answer for six months to a year. Uh, and by standards of other parts of the world, that can be deeply frustrating and offensive. But folks, here's the thing. Spend six months living in Italy and then judge the efficiency and rapid response of the Vatican. Because I am here to tell you that by comparison to the cultural milieu that determines the internal ethos of the Vatican, the Vatican itself is a well-oiled machine. By our standards, yeah, I mean, maybe you wanna pull your hair out at how long it takes to get anything done. But by the standards that matter, the Vatican actually does fairly well. That may not make you feel any better, but it is the plain fact of the matter. All right, that is our show for this week. Thank you for spending part of your Monday with us. We will be here next Monday. In the meantime, two things. One, I want to remind you that you can find full coverage of all the stories we have talked about today on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com, your one-stop shopping for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. We're in the middle of our online fundraising drive there on the site. If you can find a way clear to help us out, we would be deeply grateful. We are especially looking for people willing to make a small monthly commitment to Crux, say over the next year or so. That gives us stability. It gives us the ability to plan. We are not looking for much. Maybe what you'd spend this month on a couple cups of coffee or streaming a movie from Amazon Prime. Whatever it is, we would be deeply grateful. Second, if you like Last Week in the Church, if you find this a valuable use of your time, please give us a thumbs up, give us a like, give us a retweet. 
Go on the social media platform of your choice and make disciples of all the nations. All right, between now and next Monday, please stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week, and we will talk to you again soon.